Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 629 for the 10th of February, 2019. This week, although photographs you take today are digital, from a point-and-shoot camera, a digital SLR, or a smartphone, you may still have boxes full of old negatives. There are ways to incorporate these old images into your stored digital images. In short circuits, scammers are becoming smarter, but spotting phony messages is still easy most of the time. Let's consider one scam that looks legitimate at first glance, but takes only a few seconds to unmask. After being on the market for more than three years, Windows 10 finally has pulled ahead of Windows 7. In spare parts only on the website, Pandora is now owned by Sirius XM, and the company is looking for ways to exploit the combined platform for consumers, content creators, and advertisers. That last one is probably the most important. Pantone's color matching system is the key to accurate color for publications, paints, plastics, and now weddings, too. Few people use film for photography today, but it's not uncommon to have boxes of negatives around. Digitizing these images from negatives is challenging, and many people settle for scanning prints. There is a much better option, though. Either scanning the negatives or using a digital camera to photograph the negatives. Fortunately, the publishers of photo processing software are making it easier to deal with those scanned or photographed negatives. Some scanners have software that converts scanned negatives to positive, but scanners are slow. The fastest way to obtain an image from a negative is with a digital camera and a mechanism that's designed to hold the film. If you're handy with woodworking tools, you can build a device to do this. Not being quite so handy, I bought one. In either case, you'll need a lens that's capable of filling the viewfinder with a negative. Although many camera manufacturers make macro-focusing zoom lenses, these usually aren't quite sufficient for the task. Instead, you'll need a true macro lens. Canon makes 50mm and 100mm macro lenses. Nikon makes 60mm and 105mm macro lenses. And third-party manufacturers make macro lenses in similar lengths. My preference for lenses is in the 100mm range. Regardless of which you choose, though, these lenses are not inexpensive. Photographing slides is a lot easier because they're positive images, meaning the colors are correct. Bright is bright, dark is dark. Negatives flip all that. Bright is dark, dark is bright, colors are reversed, and color negatives have that orange cast. Applications such as Adobe Lightroom Classic and Alien Skin Exposure X4 have added controls to work with negatives. The process is fairly basic in that it simply involves inverting the tone curve so that light parts of the negatives are shown as dark and dark areas are shown as light. We'll get to that orange cast of color film a little later. A normal tone curve for a positive image runs from the lower left, dark source, dark output, 
to the upper right light source light output. That has to be reversed for a negative image. Two types of black and white negatives exist, those that use silver and those that use dyes similar to what's found in color negatives. Silver-based negatives are neutral, but dye-based negatives often display a bit of a color cast. On the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com, you'll see an example of this. An image's tone curve represents the relationship between the image file and the output. In an example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have reversed the tone curve for an example image by selecting negative from the options. In the past, you had to actually edit the tone curve manually by grabbing the lower left corner and dragging it to the upper left corner, and then grabbing the upper right corner and dragging it to the lower right corner. It's a lot easier just to be able to click negative now. The image I'm showing on the TechBiter Worldwide website needs some additional work. It was underexposed, so there is minimal detail in the dark areas, and it's kind of flat overall. I adjusted the contrast, the shadows, midtones, and highlights to produce a much better image that captures the natural mood of the scene a lot more accurately. Now that's really all that needs to be done for black and white images from silver-based film. A color cast will be present in most dye-based negatives, and that may be something you'll want to fix. Or, if you prefer the sepia-like coloring, just leave alone. Color negatives are a lot more complicated, primarily because they have that strong orange cast. If you've ever looked at an old film color negative, you know what I'm talking about. Unlike black and white negatives, color negatives contain no silver. So in addition to having reversed colors and densities, there's that orange cast that has to be dealt with. The orange hue was added to film to provide masking that corrects flaws in the overall color rendering. The orange hue, when the colors and density are reversed, becomes a blue cast. Getting rid of the blue is probably a lot easier than you might expect. Virtually all photo processing applications have an eyedropper tool that's used to select an area that should be neutral gray. This could be a gray card, if you happen to have included one back then, or something else that's neutral. You can't use pure white or pure black, though. If the photo is a close-up of a person, the whites in the eyes usually work pretty well. Cement building blocks are often acceptable. They're kind of a good neutral gray. And pavement, even though you might think it's black, it's actually a pretty dark gray, and it works well, too, in most cases. In the examples you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I chose as a starting point to set color balance a highway. A photograph taken from the air. I used the surface of the highway, and because the image was taken from an airplane, there was a good bit of haze in the atmosphere. But overall, the colors became accurate once I selected the gray of the highway. Having first applied approximate color correction to all of the selected photographs, I was then able to fine-tune the color correction on individual images. One point to keep in mind when working with scanned negatives is that presets in your photo application won't work the way they do with scanned slides or direct digital images. Presets, whether in Adobe Lightroom Classic or Alien Skin Exposure X4 or any other program, expect a positive image as a starting point. They'll convert your image right back to being a negative. Also, some of the controls may appear to be reversed. This varies from one application to another, and the only way to determine exactly how the controls work is to use them. 
Once you understand how the controls work, using them will be pretty easy. Then you can rescue all of those old negatives and make some memorable prints from the good old days. And speaking of prints, why not just scan them? It would be a lot easier to just scan the prints. So why not is a good question. And scanning prints is an option. If the negatives no longer exist, that might be the only way to create digital copies of old pictures, but it's not ideal. Prints exist in three general categories. Glossy finish prints. Scanning these kinds of prints will yield the best possible results. Glossy prints pick up fingerprints, though, and photo finishers sometimes selected other options, such as matte finish. Scans of matte finish prints won't be as crisp or as clear as those from glossy prints. The matte finish was popular because it didn't show fingerprints as much as glossy prints did. And then there's the textured finish print. That's the worst possible choice for scanning. Textured prints didn't show fingerprints at all. But the texture pattern is nearly impossible to eliminate when the prints are scanned. So prints should always be the last resort for scanning for several reasons. First, prints are cropped. Commercial photo finishers always cropped in a bit from the edges of the negative to ensure that the automated process didn't have any blank areas in the prints. In most cases, this isn't a problem, but it's still better to start with the entire negative. Second, color may be incorrect. The automated color balance might have produced prints with bad colors. Going back to the negative provides a second chance to get the color right. Third, detail is going to be better if you use negatives. Prints were made by shining a light through the negative and focusing it on the photographic print paper. Each step of the process has the potential to degrade the resulting image just a little bit. And these small degradations add up. The results will be even worse with matte finish or textured paper. And finally, contrast suffers in print scans. Every photographic medium has a contrast range. It's called the Dynamic Maximum Range, or DMAX. Describes the range of brightnesses the medium can reproduce. Color slide film has a relatively high DMAX, color negative film a slightly lower DMAX, and photographic paper an even lower DMAX. What this means in practice is that prints will have considerably less detail in bright areas and in dark areas than what is actually present on the film. So, scanning slides or negatives will always yield the best possible quality. And using a digital camera makes the process a lot easier than faster than using a film scanner. If you like the idea of resurrecting your old images but don't want to do the work yourself, there are companies that will do the scanning for you. Unfortunately, most of them provide only JPEG images instead of TIFF files. And that limits your ability to work with them in a processing application such as Adobe Lightroom, Thumbs Plus, Alien Skin Exposure X4, or other applications. This is a good do-it-yourself project. And there's a website called Scan Your Entire Life. It has a series of step-by-step -step lessons that can help you learn how to do the job right the first time. Now, membership may seem a little bit steep. It's $200 a year or $20 a month. But consider this. You'll probably be able to work through all of the lessons in considerably less than a year. So that's something to think about.
In short circuits, even though scammers are smart enough to create phony messages that look almost right, it's still pretty easy for somebody who's paying attention to spot a phony in less than 10 seconds. I received a message from Apple this week, looked legitimate, but it immediately raised several questions. First, I knew I hadn't bought anything from Apple in the past week, and certainly nothing for nearly $70. Then there was also the fact that Apple always lists the name of the device used to make the purchase. The purchase location showed as iPhone. I don't own an Apple phone. And then there was the name of the item that supposedly I had purchased. I didn't recognize that. So, obviously, it was a scam. But if you want to take a little deeper look when you receive a message like this, there are other things you can use to identify a scam. First, the message should have come from Apple.com, not Apple-support.com. Next, any links in the message should have gone to Apple.com, not Apple-authenticate.com. Also, Apple-authenticate.com was created at the end of January. Oh, and the Apple-support domain? That's registered to someone in St. Petersburg, Russia. And if even that's not sufficient, here's more. The top section of a real receipt from Apple has an Apple ID. That wasn't present in my phony receipt. And in a legitimate receipt, there's also a Build To section that includes an identifier for the type of credit card used, the final four digits of the credit card number, the buyer's name, and a complete address. The phony receipt had none of that. So the initial examination, which was sufficient to raise very serious questions, took only a few seconds, and confirming the presence or absence of key bits of information took no more than half a minute. Researching the who is information, well, that takes longer, but it really isn't necessary once you've figured out it's a scam. When I perform that step, I do it only for my own amusement. It's also unnecessary to examine the routing header of the email, but this can also be amusing. The message I'm talking about started with an unknown sender with an IP address of 23.82.128.153. Well, that IP address is not assigned to Apple. Big surprise there. It's assigned to a hosting operation in Arizona. Either the operator of the hosting service has some severe security lapses, or, more likely, one of the domains hosted there has a misconfigured form that gives scanners access to the site's SMTP server. Clicking the link would take the victim to a form that looks like Apple's login page. The mark would then enter the username and password. Now, depending on how the crooks set it up, the form would either die right there with an error message or pass the victim on to Apple's site after extracting the username and password. Either way, the crooks have the victim's username and password for Apple, and from there, they could do a lot of harm. After three years, Windows 10 now has more users than Windows 7. Many enterprises stayed with Windows 7 because Windows 8 and 8.1 didn't have features that IT managers needed. Microsoft scrapped plans for Windows 9 and eventually released Windows 10 in July of 2015. Early in 2018, Windows 7 had about 42% of the desktop market, Windows 10 had about 35%, 
and both Windows 8.1 and the Mac OS had around 6%, according to Net Market Share. Net Market Share provides monthly reports based on data collected from websites about the operating system on users' computers. In January, Windows 10 was slightly under 41%, Windows 7 was at 37%, Windows 8.1 had dropped to a bit over 4%, and the Mac OS was under 3%. Microsoft claims that Windows 10 is running on more than 700 million devices. That's a number that includes PCs, tablets, phones, and Xbox consoles. And it's considerably lower than the company's initial estimates when Windows 10 was released. Back then, Microsoft thought the new operating system would be on 1 billion devices by mid-2018. Windows phones failed to catch on and more users than Microsoft expected decided to stay with Windows 7. StatCounter is another company that provides a similar analysis, and by the way, StatCounter is used by TechBiter Worldwide. It shows Windows 10 with 53% of the market in January, Windows 7 at 35%, Windows 8.1 at about 7%. That's for users of Microsoft operating systems. When other operating systems are included, Microsoft has 75% of the market for all versions of Windows, the Mac OS has about 12%, Linux and Chrome each have less than 2%, and about 10% were unrecognized. The difference between StatCounter's numbers and NetMarketShare's numbers are the result of differing analysis techniques. NetMarketShare measures daily unique users, StatCounter measures total traffic, so multiple visits can skew the numbers a bit. And if you'd like to skew the numbers a bit for TechBiter Worldwide, just visit the site several times to see spare parts. This week, Pandora is now owned by SiriusXM. The company is looking for ways to exploit the combined platform for consumers, content creators, and advertisers. That last one is probably the most important. Pantone's color matching system is the key to accurate color for publications, paints, plastics, and now weddings, too. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.